Are you ready to take your intermittent fasting lifestyle to the next level? There's nothing better than community to help with that. In the Delay Don't Deny community, we all embrace the clean fast, and there's just the right support for you as you live your intermittent fasting lifestyle. You can connect directly with me in the Ask Jen group, and I'll answer all of your questions personally. If you're new to intermittent fasting or recommitting to the intermittent fasting lifestyle, join the 28-Day Fast Start group. After your fast start, join us for support in the first-year group. Need tips for long-term maintenance? We have a place for that. There are many more useful spaces beyond these, and you can interact in as many as you like. Visit jenstevens.com community to join us. An annual membership costs just over a dollar a week when you do the math. If you aren't ready to fully commit for a year, join for a month, and you can cancel at any time. If you know you'll want to stay forever, we also have a lifetime membership option available. IF is free. You don't need to join our community to fast. But if you're looking for support from a community of like-minded intermittent fasters, we're here for you at jenstevens.com community. That's jenstevens.com community. Achieving my long-term goals is more about creating healthy habits and less about quick fixes. And that's why I love both intermittent fasting and daily harvest. Tim Spector, a gut health expert and founder of Zoe, and Dr. B, gastroenterologist and author of Fiber Fueled, recommend that you aim for at least 30 unique plant foods per week. Daily Harvest helps make it easy. One of my favorite options is the sweet potato and wild rice hash harvest bowl. With Daily Harvest, I'm getting tons of plant-based options built on organic fruits and vegetables that are easy to prep and free of weird ingredients such as fillers, seed oils, and added sugars. Create healthy habits that last with Daily Harvest. For a limited time only, go to dailyharvest.com ifstories to get $30 off your first box plus free shipping. That's dailyharvest.com ifstories for $30 off your first box and free shipping. Daily harvest.com slash is stories. Welcome to Intermittent Fasting Stories. I'm your host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. I lost over 80 pounds thanks to intermittent fasting after learning how to delay my eating rather than deny myself the delicious foods I want to eat. Now, who's ready to hear an inspirational intermittent fasting story? That's why we're here. So let's get excited to talk to today's guest. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Episode 70 of Intermittent Fasting Stories. Today, I'm here with a very special guest that some of you probably are familiar with from your intermittent fasting research that you've done. I am here with Cynthia Thurlow, and she lives in the D.C. area, but she is most famous to those of us in the intermittent fasting world because of her fabulous TEDx talk that she did in March of 2019. That talk went viral. And I remember back when it first came out, people were posting it in my intermittent fasting support groups like five times a day. Everyone was so excited (laughs) for your talk, Cynthia. She's a nurse practitioner and a intermittent fasting, I guess, evangelist now. So welcome, Cynthia. Thank you for having me. It's really been nice to have our paths kind of intersect last month. Absolutely. It's nice when two intermittent fasting aficionados get to meet and and find out that our personalities really are well suited for one another and our opinions on intermittent fasting are nicely aligned. That that That's great to hear too. Yeah, I'll, I'll share this with the audience because they'll probably think it's funny. Cynthia and I were on a radio show about a month ago, like she said, and I had, of course, heard of her and, and seen her video, the TED Talk, but we weren't familiar with how we define you know, the fast and <laughs> our guidelines for the fast. So I was like, oh no, what if she says <laughs> something completely opposite of what I think, but we found out that we're very much aligned, which actually goes to show, Cynthia, that we're aligned with the science, right? Correct. Correct. And that's it all starts with that. I like to remind people when someone shoots me a message over social media and they'll say, well, you know, so-and-so says I can do such and such. And I said, well, there's clean fasting and there's dirty fasting. And it just depends on what aligns with you. And there's no judgment. Right. But I just like to present information and, and let people make 
decisions from there in terms of what resonates most with them. Exactly. You know, I have a a new book coming out in June of this year, Fast Feast Repeat. And I have something in there for the people that are still hesitant to jump into the clean fast. And it's called the Clean Fast Challenge, where, okay, so you don't think that it matters. I challenge you to, to try it my way for a month see what happens. And and I agree, you'll never go back. (laughs) Right. And it's interesting because I've been asked to speak at some events and the person that's nicely invited me to come to this event, they ascribe to a different type of fasting than I do. I always say, you know, because I want to be gracious and I don't like to step on toes. I just say, you know, everyone has differing opinions about what that represents for them. And so if we're coming from a standard American diet where people are eating every two or three hours, having sugar crashes and are highly addicted to processed foods, you know, maybe a dirty fast is a transitional point. But if you want to be a purist, you know, kind of like more akin with where our mindset is, you know, there's something to kind of aspire to be. And and so I try to meet our patients and our clients on, you know, on the continuum of meeting them where they are, where their needs are, you know, where they're the whole trans theoretical model of change theory in terms of meeting people where they are in terms of times and place. So I think that it's really important to recognize where you are in that journey and to not pass judgment on yourself or anyone else for that matter, because you know, only the people that are going through their own experiences really understand where they are. I love that. Not passing judgment on yourself or anyone else's experience, because mm-hmm. we are all right where we were. That's exactly right. So I like to start by asking, what brought you to intermittent fasting? You know, when did you first hear about it? Who taught you about it? And what did you think when you first heard about it? Well, the, the typical skeptic in my head when it was, it was <laughs> three people brought it up in conversation in one week, exactly five years ago. And so that typically tells me something, you know, the universe is presenting me with a concept and it's time for me to be open-minded. And so initially I was kind of like, well, I don't really know if they know what they're talking about. That was my mindset. And then I had to kind of read about it. And then I actually bought Jason Fung's book, digested that. And I was like, okay, he's a doc. He seems pretty reasonable. There are some people I recognize on social media that are in this book. I think there's probably value. And so that's where I initially started from. But the three people that introduced me to the concept, it was a fellow nutritionist. It was a personal trainer and my business coach all within one week. Oh, wow. And so I thought that was pretty powerful. And I started doing it. And of course, my family thought I was nuts, totally nuts, like especially my husband. And then I just started to really feel as if it was really nice to not have to worry about thinking about what I was eating in the morning. Like that was, I could just take that off the table and I could go about my morning and get things done and be productive. And then what really started to open up my eyes was when I really started to delve into the research, when I really sat back and started doing quite a bit of research, you know, really looking at what what others have written about it. And I'm not talking about a foo-foo, like fluffy blog article, but people have really done some scientific research. Right. And I really liked what I read. And so I, I thought, you know, this is probably given where I am in time and space, you know, we're talking perimenopause and beyond, you know, th- those years, those, those funny years when people who might not have ever had or struggled with weight or fluff or whatever you decide to call it, all of a sudden, nothing's working. And so I was starting to see more and more patients coming to me with the same issues and concerns. And so it got me really thinking like this may really be a strategy that would be very, very helpful. Once you get people's head wrapped around the concept of, I know you've been told since the day you were birthed that we have to have breakfast and we have to have cereal and we have to have oatmeal and we have to eat every two and three hours. Like Once you get people to consider alternative perspectives to that, then it's like, I mean, I think people feel so much better. They're like, not only do I not have to worry about this third meal, but I can go about my day and I can exercise and I can get up and I have tons of energy and my, you know, I feel cognitively really clear and I like that. And they feel like they have control over food and that's all good. Yeah, it really is, you know, switching that paradigm. I think it's it's just amazing that five years ago, your nutritionist friend and your personal trainer were already talking about intermittent fasting. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. 2014, that's when I was first really was like, all right, it's time. That's when I really buckled down to it. So you've been doing it since about 2014? 2015. Yeah. 2015. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, you know, exactly five years ago. Okay. Okay. So it was like as the term. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I was towards the end of 20, well, the mid of 2014. So it's back, it's been just over five years for me. So we really were, were getting into it at a very similar time. At that time, that was not that common to hear people talking about it. Because I know my family thought I was bananas and so did my friends. They thought I was always this extremist. You know, here she's paleo and now she's doing IF and what's going on? And, you know, how does she exercise? How does she work that hard? How is that possible? And so, you know, I just say, you know, remain open-minded. We're designed to be lifelong learners. If there's no other message in this podcast, it's like, we are designed to be lifelong learners. We are not meant to be static. Right. I don't ascribe to much dogma. If we're rigid in our philosophies about ourselves or nutrition or strategies for healthy aging, I just, I'm just not that person. Yeah. And our bodies change. So what works for us at one phase of our life is going to be different in another phase. That's very true. I can speak from personal experience. (laughs) So now you mentioned paleo. Are you paleo now? I am not. So here's the irony. So super healthy, you know, went on vacation with my husband last February, came back and then nearly died in February. And so I've been paleo, gluten-free, grain-free, dairy-free for a while. And and let me make this very clear. I was a happy paleo. I was not someone who felt deprived. Yeah. But what happened is after being in the hospital and having all these digestive issues, I had a ruptured appendix and a whole slew of complications. I came to find out that my body really only did well with low residue food. So that means... Now, what that meant to my gastroenterologist and surgeon was different than what it meant to me. To me, it meant I am going to eat meat because I'm not going to eat crap. (laughs) So I ate a lot of meat. In fact, I had not eaten red meat voluntarily or knowingly for over 20 years. I had just done, you know, chicken and fish and things like that. But when I was in the hospital, what I craved when I was, you know, less sick, I craved beef and I craved burgers. And that's all I thought. I dreamed about burgers, if you can imagine all the things. So I can imagine because I do love a burger. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but it was like I dreamed about a juicy steak or a juicy burger. I mean, literally, that is what I cra- I still to this day crave that in eggs. And so when I got out of the hospital, the only things I could really tolerate were, you know, initially it started with like boiled chicken and, you know, like beef stew, but it had to be like really bland. I couldn't tolerate any fiber. So vegetables were completely out. And so for many, many months, I ate steak and eggs and bacon. And so like all these kind of foods that have got lots of healthy saturated fat in them, which would keep me satiated. And I could tolerate some, when I say some, very little like fatty things. Like I do a little bit of avocado. I could do a little bit of nut butter or, you know, sunflower seed butter or things like that. But my diet was really limited. And so what has evolved from that is I tolerate probably five or six vegetables right now. I I keep trying like asparagus. I do well with, thankfully, I can do cauliflower if it's really, really cooked and riced, but there's a lot of things I used to be able to eat that I can't tolerate. And I found out I'm actually very sensitive to oxalates. So oxalates for anyone that's listening, if you're gluten-free is a lot of your diet. So if you were to have a cracker that's made with almond flour, so nuts, a lot of greens like spinach, kale, things like that, my body just does not do well with right now. And I hope that that changes, but I'm not pushing it. So when my Italian mother comes to visit, she's convinced if I'm not eating lots of green vegetables, I'm going to die. And I have to tell her that I'm thriving and doing really well, not eating lots of green vegetables. I just eat a lot of meat. (laughs) So that's become the basis. If you were to go out to dinner with me, I may have a martini and then I might have a steak. And so that's kind of become my, my new normal. Well, I think it's just so interesting that after you were sick, your body totally changed with what it tolerated. Yeah, it did. Do you, do you think that the sickness, did it change your gut microbiome or did the, was the sickness caused by you eating foods that didn't work for you? No. I mean, so we have a couple, we have a, ironically, we have a couple ideas about this. So when I was in Toronto for my first TED talk in December of 2018, I picked up E. coli. Ah, I'd eaten a salad and I got there, I got terrible food poisoning. And then I also, on top of that, I got C. diff. And so they think my functional medicine practice providers think that that might have set things up for my appendix getting so sick because, you know, after I, I cleared that and I, I actually was sick enough, I needed justifiably be treated with, you know, kind of traditional Western medicine because I was just so sick. You think about it, two months later, I had appendicitis and then I had something called pancolitis. The entire length of my colon was inflamed. And that's why they didn't take me to surgery when I showed up when I was septic. They really, they were really seriously considering it, but I did not want to have to wear a colostomy bag for the rest of my life. For anyone who doesn't know, if someone has their colon taken out, they then have a bag that all of their food waste goes into. And as you can imagine, that is not 
the way I wanted to live the rest of my life, if at all possible. So, you know, it was a slew of complications one after another. But I, I do think a combination of the degree of inflammation, I had a small bowel obstruction, I had abscesses, I mean, really, really sick. And then a month and a half of antifungals and antibiotics, my gut microbiome was wrecked. And so, you know, the last eight months has really, we've had to be very, very like slow and cautious. And it's ironic. I have two different providers that I see and they always have two different opinions. And I always have to decide which one do I want to listen to? What's reasonable for me? Turned out I, I later got candida and some mold, which they think maybe I got from the hospital. And so it's just been quite the journey to me. The things that I embrace now that I never appreciated before is like having a normal bowel movement is like a big deal. And I know that sounds silly and maybe trite and perhaps a little disgusting. Right. No, it doesn't sound silly at all. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. You can't appreciate when things are not normal for a long period of time that when you start having, you know, normal things that we take for granted, you kind of just go, I'm going to celebrate this. So very, very grateful that I'm feeling better. I've, you know, gained back most of the 15 pounds I lost, which, you know, was... I looked like a twig. It was not a healthy look at all. In fact, I I don't look at the comments underneath the TED Talk, but for a while there, there was a string of people saying, I think she looks unhealthy because she does intermittent fasting. And someone else said, oh, well, it's not, you know, she mentioned she had been in the hospital, but I hope it's not because she had (laughs) an issue with the fasting. And I was like, no, that would be from the appendix. Right. So the long story short is that, yes, we have to remain non-rigid, non-rigidly or unrigidly or be not rigid about our, our nutritional paradigms because it can shift and change. And, and certainly for myself, I've had to learn to be really, really patient and really open-minded because I almost feel like my, my nutrition over the past year has had to stop and start. Like I ate normally and healthfully for a long time. And then I had to largely just eat meat. And now I'm at a point where I'm slowly able to kind of integrate vegetables here and there, and then just kind of observe for how do I feel? You know, is my gut letting me know that was a good decision? Or is my gut making it clear that was a poor decision? Uh, And then everything in between. But so you're healing, you're healing slowly and, and taking your time with it. Yeah, when you're in your 40s, you just don't bounce back like you do when you're 20. So just acknowledging that is a journey, not a race. Exactly. And so many parts of this are a journey, not a race. And, you know, that brings us to intermittent fasting. And the whole idea of we're recording this in January, it's going to actually play at the end of February. But you know, a lot of people are just starting off with intermittent fasting. And actually, people start all year long. So no matter when they're listening, there'll be people who are just starting. But so many people start intermittent fasting, they expect it's going to be, you know, like those tabloid diets, right? You know, in fact, when I was pitching the book of mine that's coming out in, in June, my agent was like, let's talk about how much weight they're going to lose. And I'm like, well, <laughs> they might not lose anything at first. And she's like, well, we won't lead with that. <laughs> well, it, but isn't that sad that that's kind of what we've conditioned people's interest in particular nutritional philosophy or strategy is, you know, this is what you can expect. And yet it's so much more than that. Like, I think that's always what brings people to consider intermittent fasting as they, for the weight loss, but they stay for the mental clarity, the cognitive benefits, et cetera. But yeah, we always want it to be salacious, right? Oh yeah. But you know, I actually have a blog post that is entitled something like intermittent fasting. We came for the weight loss, but stick around for the health benefits. Yeah. But how exciting would it be for people to come for the health benefits and stick around for the weight loss? (laughs) (laughs) But I think it's also, you know, what do you value? Like, I think there's so much pressure on, and and I'm going to say, I'm going to make this a gender specific comment, but I think there's so much pressure on women to look a particular way. You know, the images they see on social media, they see on the movies, they see in print ads, most of which are completely doctored and Photoshopped. We put so much pressure on ourselves, whether it's, you know, before babies, after babies, after our kids are grown up, after, you know, we're through menopause. I mean, you ascribe any particular philosophy. There's so much pressure on women to look a particular way that isn't any surprise that that's our mindset. We're, we're always searching. Right. And how fast can we lose it? Correct. How fast can we get to what, you know, our perfect body? Right. And what is that? It's always evolving. Like, I, I think... I was looking at my wedding photos very recently with my my 12-year-old who thought it was hilarious. He couldn't believe how young his grandmother, my mother usually listens to my podcast. She won't appreciate this, but he couldn't believe how young his grandparents looked. <laughs> and there were some people in photos that have since passed away. And you know, he was commenting on how tiny this person looked and that person looked compared to how they look now. And I just said, Liam, that's the really kind of cool thing slash disturbing thing as you get older is that 
nothing stays the same. And, and part of that is acceptance and part of that is, you know, healthy acceptance, but also recognizing that sometimes you got to change things up and what worked for us at 30 may not work for us at 45 or 50 or older. And, and that's okay. You know, just giving yourself some grace and acknowledging that everything is, you know, I think it's Marie Forleo's new book is everything is figure outable. It's just figuring it all out. Oh yeah. Yeah. What year did you get married? I'm trying to picture your 2003. So it was the strapless dress era, you know, with the big like sash that came across the waist, you know, I had an A-line. Okay. And it had this beautiful, it was like a cream, but it had this beautiful like beige sash that had a big bow. It was the big bow phase and everyone had these big bows. Oh yeah. I got married in 1991. So you can only imagine the the lovely looks for that era. (laughs) Yeah. So you got married, like, were you in college? No, I graduated from college in 1990. So it was a year after that. Yeah. You were a very, very young woman. I was a baby. Yeah. My husband and I were still together. (laughs) He was 20 and I was 21. We were so young. Lordy. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. I love it. No, we were 32 and 34, which According to my husband's family that lived in Maine, we were the quote unquote oldest single people who had never been married. Oh, I love that though. And so I remember I was like, I think there's a compliment in there, but I'm not sure. <laughs> so because you like waited around and you found just the right people for each other, right? You found- <laughs> right, right. And I just said, I didn't meet him until I was 30. So yeah, I guess maybe 30 was <laughs> old, but really, really old to them. And he's like, he just looked at us like we were crazy. Like, we didn't expect you to have been married once or twice, had a couple of kids. And we were both like, yeah, no. <laughs> That's great. But yeah, you know, we can look back at those times and know that, that we do change. Correct. And we're not the same. And you're, you don't have the same gut that you had three years ago. No. And you know what the sad thing is? I think I read the statistic was after one round of antibiotics, now granted, I had mine for many, many weeks because I went home on IV antibiotics and antifungals. So it was saying like the net impact to your gut microbiome could be three to four years. And so I remember saying to my functional medicine provider, I was like, you know, we got to work on that because that's just not an acceptable statistic. Like for me, it needs to be reduced by two thirds. Like I'm just not willing because to me, like I do a lot of professional business travel. I'm like, I can't get on a plane to go somewhere and like run the risk of getting sick every time I fly. I'm like, that's not realistic doing as much as I can, you know, proactively. And here's the irony. You may be in the statistic too, but they were looking at, you know, because we've had all these measles outbreaks and I was reading statistic that anyone born between, I think it was like 67 and 76, very likely that your measles vaccine is no longer, your titers are too low. Yeah. I was born in 69. So that's me. Yeah. So long story short, you know, I had my titers drawn and sure enough, my measles titers like barely barely perceptible. And so they're like, we can't give you a vaccine. It's a live vaccine. We just can't do it. And so, you know, the arsenal of stuff that I walk around with when I fly and travel is ridiculous because I'm trying to do everything I can to bolster my immunity. Because for anyone who's listening and doesn't know, the bulk of our immunity really is contained in our gut microbiome. And so because mine has largely been kind of decimated or was decimated, you know, almost a year ago, it's going to take a while for it to kind of rebound and, and be in a healthy place. But I do credit the fact that I've been eating meat because it's such a protein dense diet. I do credit that for allowing me the opportunity to kind of bounce back as quickly as I have. But yeah, never a dull moment, right? You might want to get your tighter straw. Yeah, that's now I'm like a help. I don't want to get the measles. No. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You just never know. All right. Question. When I researched for my second book, Feast Without Fear, I talked about the gut microbiome in there. And I remember reading for C. diff, one of the treatments is a fecal transplant, fecal matter transplant. Have you read about that at all? Is that is that something that they're doing? I know that was like a therapy that was mentioned. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it used to be a little bit more experimental. You were really just seeing that at the big teaching hospitals, but I have several gastroenterologist friends that are at, you know, big teaching hospitals. And so I remember when I first heard about that, I was like, is this for real? And they're like, yeah, it happens. Yeah. But it actually is supposed to be, I mean, if you can imagine they really process the poop so that it's, it's not like one person poops and they just insert it into someone else. It's been cleaned up. But yeah, it can be for someone that's got a healthy gut microbiome can be hugely beneficial. And it's really fascinating. It just goes to show you that, you know, natural sometimes really is best because I see so many people that are 
they're like all about the probiotic rich foods and they're all about taking probiotics. I'm like, that's all good. But there's also this other component to gut balancing and, and a lot of it's stress management and sleep and, you know, eating proper nutrition. We literally are what we eat. So if you're, you know, ascribing to a particular philosophy and then you're going home and eating a bag of donuts every night, then, you know, the sugar is probably not the best thing for healthy neurotransmitters, immunity, et cetera. Right. One thing that fascinated me when I learned about the gut microbiome was how many of our cravings are driven by what lives in our gut. Yes, absolutely. You know, you mentioned that when you were recovering, you were craving red meat and you had not eaten it in 20 years. And suddenly your body was crying out, got to have some red meat. So talk to us about gut microbiome and food and cravings and things like that. Yeah. I mean, when I think about cravings and I'm not talking about like you get your period and every time you get your period, you crave chocolate because that's usually magnesium, but I'm talking about people that have unrelenting cravings. Like they think about sugar from the moment their feet hit the floor till they go to bed at night. You know, I start thinking about, you know, do they have an overgrowth of candida? Do they have an imbalance of beneficial versus non-beneficial bacteria? You know, we've learned a ton about the gut microbiome over the last, you know, five, 10 years. And, and now there's a lot of testing that comes out that can actually allow us to kind of get a better sense for what's going on. So when someone's experiencing cravings, you know, I always dial in on like the basics, like, are you getting enough sleep? Because we know that not only does not enough sleep contribute to blood sugar dysregulation and difficulty controlling your blood sugar in, in, a, in a proper way, but can also, you know, contribute to this imbalance, you know, in the endocrine system, meaning there are key hormones that leptin and ghrelin that can be dysregulated for not getting proper sleep. So I always look at what's sleep going on. Are you hydrating yourself? Are you not getting enough? You know, I don't count calories per se, but if your macros, the protein, fat, and carbohydrates are off, you can crave foods that your body's looking for a quick fix. So I always say, especially for women, focusing on protein and healthy fats and then adding in carbohydrates if you've earned them. Once women kind of head into perimenopause, it's really it's not that you don't eat carbs and, and some people carb cycle, which is something that I do. That's more of an kind of advanced strategy, but you don't get a, a all holds barred pass on cakes and cookies and muffins and things like that. Those days are long gone. And unfortunately, I hate to break it to people. Right. And it's those processed carbs are just not really good for, for any of us. No. That's highly refined and sugary. Yep. And it really can, you know, drive those cravings. So like sweet potato and squash, and if you tolerate grains, you know, things like quinoa, for example, buckwheat, I mean, those are reasonable things to eat, but not copious amounts. And so I really start diving into talk to me about what you're eating. And what I find is a lot of women are still very fat phobic. And that can be hugely problematic, because we know that fat is a very satiating macronutrient. It is one that keeps us full, it slows digestion in a positive way. So I find sometimes when people are eating too low fat, their body's like craving sugar because they're trying to look for a quick, you know, energy source. And what I find ironically is that people generally don't overdo it with protein because proteins, it makes you feel full. It can be very, very satiating. Like I can only eat so much chicken at one time. I'm not going to ever be like, man, I shouldn't have eaten all that chicken. That's never what's happened. <laughs> right. Exactly. But whereas, you know, if you put fat and carbs together and you put them in a processed form like a Dorito or an Oreo, I mean, that's hard to stop. So, and they also have those fake things in there, those chemicals that get your brain all going. You know, there's that book, The Dorito Effect. Have you seen that book? Have you read it? I have not, but I do. Well, the one that I generally recommend is Salt, Sugar, Fat. Have you read that? I have not read that one. It's a book that made me very mad. <laughs> Don't, is it also now, do they have a, a documentary on that on Netflix, maybe salt, sugar, fat, maybe not. There's one on fat. Yeah. Vinny, and I'm going to forget his last name is really well done. So the game changers is like the big documentary that I'm currently writing a rebuttal on. And then fat, which fat, I, I believe in that documentary, that's got really good real science as opposed to pseudoscience. It's been manipulated. I, I think the documentaries can be beneficial slash non-beneficial, meaning if they get people talking about food, I think that's great. But if it, if I get one more DM on social media that says, I'm thinking about going vegan because, and I'm like, Oh God, yeah, <laughs> not a good thing. So, so all those things, sleep, stress, food choices, all impact, really impact the endocrine system and impact satiety, impact our appetites, impact the gut microbiome. But the other thing is, you know, just looking at the fact that it's very common to see people heading into middle life with uh, underactive thyroids. And so that's really 
critical that you're you're getting those things really looked at because we know that a lot of the inactive to active thyroid hormone is converted in the gut. So if the gut's not healthy, that can impact that. We know it's one of the main sites for packaging of estrogen. So as women are heading into perimenopause and they have less progesterone being produced by our ovaries, our adrenals start to pick up the slack a bit. I'm oversimplifying things, but for purposes of this conversation, we become relatively estrogen dominant. That's when we start getting what I refer to as crime scene periods. And so all of a sudden we go from having manageable periods where, you know, we've been doing this for a long time. So we know exactly how many pads or tampons or cups or whatever, however you ascribe to your monthly flow, you know, however you deal with it to all of a sudden, like, oh my gosh, it's like a crime scene. I can't deal with this. And that hello, that's estrogen dominance. But what we want is our gut to be as healthy as possible so we can package up the extra estrogen and poop it out. And so a lot of people don't eat enough fiber is one way that can help kind of package up that extra estrogen and get it out. So, you know, all these things really impact our gut microbiome. And and I always say to people that it, it's not normal to have crime scene periods for years on end. And it's why are so many women being pushed into having ablations or being put on synthetic hormones in their 40s, which I think is unfortunate, you know, coupled by the fact a lot of people drink a lot of alcohol at night. You know, this isn't like I have a glass of wine once a week. It's I have two to three glasses of wine every night. And, and that can, it can mess up multiple things. It can mess up our sleep, give us hot flashes, it can contribute to more calories than what we want to consume in a given day. It can be maladaptive because it can take us from having a healthy nutrition plan. We all face stress in our daily lives. What if the answer to a better stress response is in one key nutrient? I'm talking about magnesium and specifically magnesium breakthrough by by optimizers. This one-of-a-kind product is designed to reverse low levels of magnesium, which could have a positive effect on our stress response. But don't take my word for it. Here's a quote from a 2020 issue of the scientific journal Nutrients. Results suggest that stress could increase magnesium loss, causing a deficiency. And, in turn, magnesium deficiency could enhance the body's susceptibility to stress, resulting in a magnesium and stress vicious circle. I only recommend Magnesium Breakthrough by Bioptimizers. It's the only organic full-spectrum magnesium supplement that includes seven unique forms of magnesium for stress resilience and better sleep. Simply go to bioptimizers.com slash ifstories promo code IFSTORIES10 to get your magnesium breakthrough and find out this month's gift with purchase. That's bioptimizers.com slash IFSTORIES, promo code IFSTORIES10. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know what a fan I am of Dr. Tim Spector and the work he's doing with Zoe. I was first introduced to his work in 2015, and I've been following his research ever since. What I love most about the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is that they have weekly interviews with world-leading experts who explain how their latest research can benefit your health. Recently, I was thrilled to finally meet him face-to-face as we recorded an episode for the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast, and this episode aired on on April 11th. We had a chance to talk about the world's biggest intermittent fasting study, and I had the opportunity to explain the clean fast to Jonathan, which may explain why he didn't enjoy his prior experiences with fasting. Search for Zoe Science and Nutrition on your podcast player or on YouTube to hear the latest episode, and don't forget to look for the April 11th episode to hear me, Tim, and Jonathan talk about the world's biggest intermittent fasting study to derailing it by consuming all the alcohol at night. So, you know, it's really looking at everything. I think it's really critical and important. Yeah. Wine has been something I've looked at for myself because, you know, I used to be a teacher and then I retired. And when I was a teacher, I wouldn't have wine on a school night. And then I I retired and I'm like, I'm having a glass of wine and tomorrow I'm having another, but you're right. You know, then you're like, wait, I had two glasses of wine every night. It's time to cut that back. So (laughs) I've been working on that myself because it's just, it's easy just to pour that glass of wine every single day, but it, it doesn't do me any favors. Like you're saying, sleep, hot flashes. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, unfortunately here's the non-sexy for anyone who's not in perimenopause, the five to seven years preceding menopause. So this is why I don't drink very often because it is a given that if I drink a glass of wine, I will get a hot flash. Like my sister-in-law was teasing me over the holidays and I said, listen, I have to gauge how badly I want that glass of wine because if I have more than one, it is given. I will not sleep well. I will have hot flashes. It is so not sexy. So (laughs) from my perspective, I'm like, generally speaking, it is not worth it because (laughs) I like my sleep a lot. I'm just at this point in my life where I really need a good night's sleep pretty consistently. I would much rather have a good night's sleep. A good night's sleep? Yeah, exactly. I get it. So you just mentioned a whole bunch of different 
things that could get in the way of weight loss or health or, you know, all the, the things that, you know, for women even and for men. And I go back to what Dr. Jason Fung, I've seen him say, and that is that obesity is a multifactorial problem. And I just really, I like to pull that word out because, you know, so many people will start living an intermittent fasting lifestyle and they, they really want to, you know, lose the weight. That's their goal. But I like to tell people that, you know, intermittent fasting is only going to lead to weight loss for you right away if it addresses the reason that you're overweight. And there's so many things intermittent fasting does address, but then there's all the things that, that it doesn't address. So do you want to talk to that? point for a moment? Yeah. I mean, I do agree that it is a multifactorial problem. I mean, obviously extra adipose tissue, it's inflammatory. And so you have to think about what's inflaming the body. And I always start with food. So super not sexy, but truth is that I find most women as they cruise into their forties, there are two big or two or three big things that really don't work for them anymore. And it's hard because we've gotten conditioned to eating a certain way throughout our lifetime. Gluten is one, dairy is another, sugar is probably the third. And then it really depends beyond that. I'm not a fan of soy. So that's, that's probably a fourth, but I find that most people really don't tolerate dairy. Like a lot of people can kick a lot to the curb, but dairy, most people are highly addicted to dairy. And so that can be hugely problematic. So I think food is the first thing that we really have to think about that's driving inflammation. We think about the external stressors. I mean, most of us internalize our stress and you know what you can weather in your 20s and 30s about not getting enough sleep, being under tremendous stress, you can't weather as much. I feel like perimenopause is a time when your body tells you you're either going to learn how to deal with it in a healthy way or you're not going to thrive. Right. And so that means, you know, prioritizing, not prioritizing per se, going to get a manicure, but you need to do some internal work. You need to be doing yoga or Tai Chi or meditation. And meditation is not something that costs any money whatsoever. I finally out of desperation because I wouldn't describe myself per se as sympathetic dominant, but I, I would say that I tend to be a high energy person. I tend to be someone that's very focused and disciplined. And so I need something to quiet, to take me down a notch. And so I actually purchased something called Muse, M-U-S-E. I'm not affiliated with them. You can find it on Amazon. And so it kind of reminds you if you're if you're in the right headspace, literally for meditation. So what is Muse? What is it exactly? So it's actually, it looks like a headband, but it looks a little bit like techie headband. It's not uncomfortable. You put it on. I have an app on my phone. And so it will play music. And so I'm supposed to keep my mind in the right mindset as I'm doing this. I mean, there's actual like science behind this. I'll have to send you a link. That's how, I'm just, I'm writing it down because it sounds so interesting and I want to try it. <laughs> yeah. And so my, I have a friend who's a huge biohacker. And so he gave me a couple recommendations because I'm really struggling with the meditation piece. I know I need to do it, but like meditation, yoga, Tai Chi, just not having a lot on your calendar. Like how many of us load up our calendars and make it super busy all the time. And then you're exhausted on the weekend or you never give yourself downtime. Like there's no shame in sitting on your couch and reading a book and, you know, giving ourselves opportunity. Like now I don't start my day jumping into email, jumping into social media. I will actually go exercise and then I will come home and I'll read for 30 minutes. And it doesn't have to be something work related. It could be reading for pleasure, but that's how I start my day because that allows me to start with like a clean, fresh mind. I'm in a good, I'm in like, I feel much, much better that way as opposed to the normal rat race. And then, you know, thinking about other things that contribute to inflammation. So like we talked about stress, we've already talked about poor sleep, you know, how many people go to bed with their electronics, how many people go to bed, you know, attach their iPhone. And so it's like that blue light dysregulates melatonin secretion in the brain. And, you know, melatonin is an anti-inflammatory hormone. And we know that if you're not secreting enough melatonin, it impacts serotonin in the gut, which also impacts estrogen. I always remind people like there's no hormone that doesn't interact with another hormone. So if you want to have healthy hormones, you got to get sleep. And then I think it's also really critical that people are asking for the right lab tests. You know, I know when I was prescribing medication and I was working with patients, I was always asking like, what's your insulin level? What's your glucose level? What's your hemoglobin A1C? What's, you know, I would be asking these questions because, you know, there are markers in our bodies that can let us know that we've really gone off the ship. We're, we're not where we need to be. And so you don't, you shouldn't want or desire to ever be on diabetes medication or cholesterol medication or blood pressure medication 
until you've done all the other things. The lifestyle piece is really, really important. And then I would also say that when we're really looking at the gut microbiome and its influence, I mean, there's some data, although I see conflicting research now, that certain types of microorganisms in the gut can influence not only, obviously, we've talked a little bit about the cravings piece, but also can contribute to whether or not we are prone to gaining weight or not prone to gaining weight. And so it, again, it goes back to we are what we eat. So making better food choices, eating less processed food, really focusing again on protein and healthy fats, and then adding in those carbs if you've earned them. There is nothing to suggest that all of us need to have copious amounts of carbs. Unfortunately, we as a culture have gotten very carb focused. So, you know, when I go to people's houses and they think about the rice and the pasta before they think about their protein, and I always say we've got it backwards. The, most of the carb choices are cheap. And I understand why there, there, there are economic reasons why this sometimes is the case. For the same reason, when you go to a restaurant, generally they're serving big copious amounts of bread. Well, what does bread do? It primes us to want more and more and more. What does bread turn into in the body? Of course, I'm oversimplifying. It turns into sugar. What do we need less of? Less sugar. So starting with protein and healthy fats and then earning in those carbs and people do so much better. You know, they're not sleepy after a meal. It's not normal to be sleepy after a meal. You shouldn't have more cravings after you eat. You should feel full and satiated. Yeah, I think that's key. Tweak that diet till you feel satisfied after your meal and you don't want to feel worse after you eat. I think that's very important. I think the key thing that I have realized over the last several years is that satiety is the key to weight loss. Meaning if you can be satisfied with what you're eating and you're not having cravings, yeah, that should, you know, net weight loss if that's what your your goal is. But if I can't get you satiated, then the weight will not be so that that's always the, you know, finding that tricky balance between being satiated and if you're if that's a, a goal is to lose weight, you know, are you having too much fat? Too much of anything is not good. So is that what's derailing that last bit of weight loss that you're looking for? So I think that though all those things contribute to the obesity piece. And then also realizing that, you know, adipose tissue is considered to be an organ. Like it is super sophisticated, super hormonally mediated with the rest of the body. I mean, you look at leptin resistance and leptin is that hormone, that satiety hormone. And if you can't get the signal to your brain to tell you you're full, that's a problem, right? Have you ever read Dr. Bert Herring's book, AC, The Power of Appetite Correction? Have you ever stumbled across that? I have not. That book, I love it so much. He he coined that phrase, appetite correction. And just a, a little bit about, do you know who Bert Herring is? Have you come across him at all? He's also got a, an intermittent fasting TED Talk. And the only one the only one that I know of was a doc at Hopkins. Ironically, I trained there, but that was the only one I had stumbled upon. So I may have to... Mark Matson. Yes. Yeah, Mark Matson. He's my favorite. I love Mark Matson. Yes. <laughs> But yeah, Dr. Bert Hearing, he actually worked at NIH for a while, and he was the creator of, he's he's actually the one that got me started on intermittent fasting with his Fast Five program, which was like the 19-5. He was the first one that, where I ever read about an eating window, was reading his Fast Five book. But he wrote a book in probably 2015, I think, called AC, The Power of Appetite Correction, and it's everything that you were just talking about, about satiety and being satisfied after eating. And he calls it appetite correction. And so it's when you have just the right lifestyle for you, like you were just saying, that you feel satisfied after eating and your body says you've had enough. And it's dialing in those food choices and the eating window length until you get to that that place where you feel satisfied with an appropriate amount of food. You're no longer wandering around the kitchen, you know, trying to satisfy cravings because you're satisfied. Mm-hmm. You know, it's when you eat three fourths of your plate of food and you're like, oh, I've had enough and you stop. Yeah. I think that's a really powerful realization because it's counter to everything that I learned during my training. You know, Western medicine trained providers get little to no nutrition training. It was always, this is the food guide pyramid and this is what you should recommend. And the the food guide pyramid tends to be very heavy on the foods that I don't think we should, we need to be eating a lot of. So, you know, that, that distinction is really critical, but what I would say is interestingly enough, I've never heard of appetite correction, but that makes complete sense. And I, I think that once someone gets to a point where they are fully satiated, they start to realize that they're like, well, I am going to make better food choices because I know when I eat X, Y, and Z, I feel one way. And when I eat these other foods, I don't feel good. So kind of reinforces, you know, making those continued good habits for sure. And I think intermittent fasting really points us towards that because 
when I started, even when I wrote Delay Don't Deny in 2016, you know, I've changed a lot since then and it happened naturally. You know, I was eating a lot more processed foods back then and that was what I craved. But I rarely eat those foods now because my body doesn't want them. And I've realized I feel better when I don't eat them. Like I think back to, I don't know, a couple of years ago, maybe I went to McDonald's for some reason and had like a Big Mac meal. You know, it's something I have enjoyed in my past. And that's a lot of food. I mean, and it's also a lot of quote calories. You should not be hungry after eating a Big Mac meal, right? But I spent the whole rest of the evening wandering around the kitchen trying to become satisfied. And I never felt satisfied that whole night. And then I'm like, well, it's because I didn't put any nutrients in my body. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's interesting that someone said to me recently, which makes complete sense that an obese patient is starving for nutrients. And that makes complete sense because their body's not able to break down and assimilate the foods that they're eating to be able to use them to make healthy neurotransmitters to keep themselves satiated to make healthy hormones. I mean, all of those pieces, it just totally makes sense. And it's interesting. I I read your book, by the way, when I was flying out to Utah, and I thought it was so easy to read. And there was so much great information in there. And I thought to myself, I can't believe I hadn't stumbled upon this before. Well, thank you. (laughs) Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash Wondery and use code Wondery for 20% off your first purchase. It's harder to focus than ever these days. Thankfully, C4 has reinvented the energy drink game with C4 Smart Energy, the only energy drink clinically proven to provide enhanced mental focus, containing 200 milligram of natural caffeine, a blend of vitamins and zero sugar. It was formulated to support your well-being and help you feel your best, all while enhancing mental focus. From your brain to your body, C4 Smart Energy does it all and tastes amazing. Look for Smart Energy in the beverage aisle at your local Kroger, Albertsons, and Safeway grocery stores. See for smart energy. Stay focused. No, but but I love I love hearing, you know, your journey and, and hearing, you know, what you've been through and, and how far you've come and how much you've learned and, and how that's impacted so many lives. And I think that's that's really what, you know, this space is for is, is sharing our stories so we can inspire other people. Yeah. And I, I think that my story resonates with a lot of people just because they're like, hey, she's a regular girl. She's a mom. She was a teacher. She's a wife. She's just like me. She struggled. And so, so yeah, I'm, I'm grateful that I've had the opportunity to get the word out there and that it inspires other people because if I can do it, they can do it too. <laughs> we all can make our health better. Yeah. And I, I think it's all about the long game. It's all about quality of life. And, you know, now that I'm in the, the second part of my life, I like to say, you know, at some point my, my boys won't be at home anymore. And Oh yeah. Mine are both gone. We have an empty nest. Yeah. And so, you know, just thinking about how do I want to live my life in this transitional period that I'm going through? And I'm like, I want to be active. I want to be able to travel. I don't want to be shouldered with having to take lots of medication. And so, you know, living your best life possible and making sure that you remain healthy so that you can interact with your future grandchildren or your clients or your patients or whomever you're working with you know, I'd rather do that without a slew of medications. Like, in fact, I remember last year when I was so sick and my surgeon said, you know, at your age, had you been anyone else, you would have had a different outcome. And that was sobering. <laughs> You're like, what at my age? What do you mean by that? Cause we still feel, you know, we, we don't feel like we're, <laughs> no, no, I feel like I'm 30 inside, but I'm not 30 on the outside. So that's kind of how I, I look at it. It's, you know, it's, it's humbling. It's like, I recognize that chronologically I'm not I'm not 30 anymore. And, you know, I'm not invincible. Yeah, we moved about six months ago. And I did a lot of, you know, all in the fasted state. I did a lot of box hauling and lifting and reaching. And I felt so great. But then my knee was like, hello, this is a 50-year-old knee. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's every once in a while. Like I have plantar fasciitis in one foot. And I can always tell when I'm not doing enough self-care or I'm not, you know, I'm overdoing it with, I don't run, but sometimes I'll just do intervals. And so 
it's always my reminder. I always say I didn't have any achy pains until I was like 38. And then I started having this, you know, intermittently, if I'm not taking care of myself, my foot will ache. And it's amazing how when your foot hurts, it kind of messes everything else up too. Oh yeah. So very, very humbling, of course. Like you said earlier, when you, you appreciate health in a different way, as soon as one thing is a little bit out of whack, you're like, oh, wow, you, you appreciate how great it feels to feel good. So let me spin back around to intermittent fasting. What is your, you know, like elevator story or elevator pitch when, when you're telling someone about intermittent fasting for the first time? Usually I tell them I just skip breakfast. You know, I said, if you can imagine, you know, skipping breakfast and just by skipping breakfast, you are going to lower your insulin levels, you're going to have more mental clarity, you're going to be more fat adapted. So you're going to be more efficient with your fuel source in your body. You're not going to get these ebbs and flows of energy. You know, you're going to lessen your likelihood of these neurologic issues, lessen your likelihood of developing diabetes. I mean, that's typically my, my tipping point. And then I'm like, you're already fasting 13 or 14 hours a day. You just didn't realize it. Right. And then, you know, you start talking about, well, when do you finish dinner? And when do you eat breakfast? And I'm like, okay, you've already fasted 14 hours. Do you think you could extend it to 15 hours? And they're like, sure. And then they find out they can actually consume coffee. They can have tea. They can have water. So they're not doing it dry. You know, I think a lot of people think fasting equates to they're going to just have nothing to eat or drink. And I'm like, no, no, no. You never, ever, ever want to fast dry, ever. Anyone that's listening, never fast dry. Yeah. So I think that's typically where I start from. Sometimes people don't want to do it every day. So I would say, well, there's something for everyone. You would even benefit from doing it two days a week. And we talk about what that represents. And so it's, it's all about finding a strategy that resonates with them. Some people want to do one 24-hour fast a week. And I'm like, knock yourself out. Yeah. Every little bit helps. It's cute. It adds up. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we talk about autophagy. I'm like, you know, there's this really cool word. And let me explain to you what that means, you know, for the people that would appreciate it. And I just find that people like the idea of getting rid of diseased and disordered cells. Like they like the idea of the garbage going out. They like the idea of the trash going out. And so kind of expending to them that you only tap into this really when you're fasted. So it, it doesn't benefit you to be eating all day long because you you never intrinsically will tap into all the benefits from intermittent fasting. And so I think people start off being curious, but there's usually something that's happened that makes them receptive to being open to the concept, whether it's been a health scare or a, a death in the family or someone close to them has gotten sick or, you know, they're just, they're feeling like the pants are snug or maybe they put on 10 pounds and they're like, where did that happen? How did that happen? And they start to realize that, you know, all these things kind of, nothing exists in a vacuum. Like, let's be very upfront about that. Right. It's all connected in the body. Right. And I'm like, there's a lot of things about, you know, health and aging that can put them into a, you know, a little bit of a tailspin. So at least this is one strategy that can help them with that. So I'm sure that you saw the news reports that were all, you know, right before the end of the year in 2019, everyone was talking about intermittent fasting. Did you have a chance to look at that article that was in the New England Journal of Medicine? I did. I did because it was it was blasted all over Twitter. It's everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And it's exciting because it's like that's one of the most respected medical journals. And to finally have there's attention to intermittent fasting. However, what's of course going to come out of that is there's going to be some pharmaceutical company that's going to try to benefit. Like they're going to say, if you take this pill, it'll... It's just like fasting. Correct. <laughs> or, you know, if you take this pill, it'll exponentially increase your, uh, you know, your autophagy gains, or there'll be some type of beneficial thing. On Twitter, I, I mute or block most of the pharmaceutical companies because I, I don't want to listen. It's like just when I, if I happen to be watching TV, I don't want to look at a pharmaceutical ad. So, you know, I, I actually fired back one day and said, you know, why don't you just suggest to people to do the things that don't cost any money? Like, why do we have to bring a, a drug to market that is going to cost billions of dollars that is going to do exactly what this does? And it doesn't cost money. You know, I understand you have a bottom line, but like, what about going back to basics? Like, that's just kind of my philosophy in general. Like, why make it complicated? Let's go back to basics. Let's be mindful of the fact that people don't want to buy into like the latest and greatest pill or pouch potion or powder. You know, let's be reasonable, right? And our bodies can clean up all this stuff on their own without you putting the stuff in. Actually, even better, you know, because everything that you take in those pills, they're all going to have unintended consequences. You know, we hear of, you know, side effects. Everyone knows that that terminology, but there's a cascade of things that happens in the body when you put these chemicals in. You know, maybe it addresses your 
whatever illness, maybe it addresses your cholesterol, but now it's going to do this other thing that now you're going to have to address that problem. And intermittent fasting is free. (laughs) I always say free, flexible. Free and flexible. Yeah. And just seeing that it was all over the news, it was all over the morning shows. And the saddest moment is when I saw them on one of the morning shows and the host was talking about how he tried it for five days and it wasn't for him. And I was like, five days. (laughs) You know, the intermittent fasting is not the thing you try for five days and then judge that it's not for you. Yeah. You got to give it more than five days. Your body doesn't adjust to it in five days. No, I always tell people you need 30 to 60 days and I generally recommend 60 and inevitably I'll get some, I've been doing it for three weeks. I've only lost three pounds. I'm like, well, that's perfect. (laughs) Right. I'm like, did you give it 30 to 60 days? And like people are just, I think they're accustomed to rapid weight loss and because of the rapid weight loss that they've had before with strategies, which of course were not sustainable, they are expecting things to be the same with this. And so I remind them, this is a strategy you can use forever. You can use it with just about any nutritional paradigm and you can use it successfully. You can do it on vacation. I do it all the time. My kids know this. doesn't matter what time zone I'm in. I can do it. Right. So it's all about sustainability, you know, instead of just trying to like, think of it as like, I'm just doing this for 30 days. Like what about trying it long-term and seeing how that works for you? Right. And it's when you eat and not what. And so you have the freedom to tweak what as much as you want. You can even tweak the when, you know, tweak the way that you approach your intermittent fasting pattern, you know, and, and it's very flexible on vacation, traveling, like you said, absolutely. So, you know, it's not going to be quick. It's not a crash diet. If someone asked yesterday, how can I lose 30 or 40 pounds in the next month so I can? And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> there you can't. No, it's not sustainable. I, I just remember there was a very wise cardiologist I worked with who I was very, very fond of. And he used to always say slow and steady wins the race. And it was about he applied that to everything in life. But, you know, weight loss is, is the way that I think of it, that slow and steady wins. You don't want to lose like 10 pounds in a week. That's not sustainable. So you want it to be slow and sustainable. Exactly. Now we are almost out of time. So I like to end by asking, you know, what would you tell someone just starting off with intermittent fasting? I guess that we haven't already just said, (laughs) or is there anything you wish that you knew when you were first starting? God, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think what I have come to believe about fasting, you know, I used to think of it as a physical thing you know, that you ascribe to not eating during a particular time period. But what I've come to find is that fasting for me has become a very spiritual practice. And it's one that, you know, sometimes it's a battle of wills, you know, have some days and and I do listen to my body. Let me be very clear. There's some days I have to break my fast earlier. I just either I can tell based on my workouts or whatever's been going, I've been sleeping well, I'm just going to break my fast earlier. So I listen to my body, but I've come to find that intermittent fasting for me has become much more of a spiritual practice. And so, you know, that mindset is, is huge and critical. And that's the beauty of, of fasting that I didn't realize at the beginning. Beginning, I thought it was more of a physical thing. We hear that a lot. It filters over into all aspects of your life in a way that you weren't expecting. Correct. And that's the beauty of it. Like, I think that's the place initially people start is they think it's the physical piece, but really it's the emotional, spiritual piece. And that for me is so much more important, you know, much more so than I had ever thought possible before. And so it allows me to be much more intrinsically connected to my body, much more aware of how my body feels and really listening to it. And so, like I mentioned earlier, sometimes that means my fasting is shorter. Sometimes it means it's longer. I just go based on how my body feels and respond to it accordingly. I love that. Now, how can people follow you or find your work? Well, my website's a good start, www.cynthiatherlow.com. I'm on Twitter. I love Twitter. I'm on Instagram and Facebook. And my YouTube is, well, my team is slowly, we're kind of working on YouTube. That's been like my 2020 goal is to kind of start making a more conscientious effort to be contributing to things there. But I do have a Facebook group. It's called Cynthia Circle. I know that's not a very a very cool name, but there were a lot of other names that were getting confusing to try to align with. So we just use it as that. And it's a great place to come and speak on a variety of topics. I get a lot of people who want to focus on intermittent fasting, which is fine, but we do a lot of nutrition and self-care kind of focus modalities and posts and videos. Kind of holistic. Yeah. Really, you know, looking at people from the inside out as opposed to the outside in. 
Oh, I love that. Well, Cynthia, thank you so much for being with us today. And I really enjoyed talking to you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Do you have an intermittent fasting story to tell? Email me at jen at intermittentfastingstories.com and I'll add you to the lineup. That's G-I-N at intermittentfastingstories.com. The world wants to hear your story. That's it for today. Remember, I may have a doctorate, but I'm not a medical doctor. So don't use anything you hear on this podcast as a substitute for medical advice. Please always check with your doctor or healthcare provider if you have medical questions. I'll talk to you next week, Fasting Family, where we will hear another inspiring story. Have a great week and fast on. Intermittent Fasting Stories is edited, mixed, and mastered by Resonate Recordings. To learn more, visit them at ResonateRecordings.com or email them at hello at ResonateRecordings.com. Intermittent Fasting Stories listeners will receive a free offer if you mention that you heard it on the podcast.